Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, January 15th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography as you want at any time from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. This episode is also brought to you by HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. Bill Maher returns for a new season of HBO award-winning series, Real Time with Bill Maher, right as the presidential election swings into high gear, and he probably has a few things to say about some of those candidates. New season premieres tonight, Friday, January 15th at 10 p.m., only on HBO. Again, that's Friday, January 15th at 10 p.m. Last year, we spent a few episodes talking about the epidemic of mass shootings in the U.S., and often the perpetrators of these shootings are found to be mentally ill, or there's evidence that the attack itself was carefully planned out far in advance. And when we try to wrap our heads around what happened, it feels comforting, at least to me, to be able to point to a cause, a psychotic break, or a hateful agenda. But what about those times when we hear about a person who did something terrible but no one saw it coming, that it was completely out of character, like the grandmother who kills her beloved grandchild for apparently no reason, or the driver who gets into an altercation at at a traffic light and pulls a gun. In terms of sheer numbers, these kinds of incidents are far more common than the pre-planned attacks or violence committed by people with schizophrenia or other psychotic disorders. And You know, we like to think that we're in control of our actions, especially when they're relatively complex, like the kind of actions that you'd need to actually harm someone. And we've built a justice system and a civilization taking that premise for granted. But there are moments when we act out of character and seemingly outside our own will. Kishore, have you ever snapped? You know, we used to call it going postal, but I guess that's not very PC anymore. (laughs) I don't think I've I've snapped in the way that you're referring to where I have like a really violent fit, but I've come really, really close where kind of the world goes blank and you do something out of character. I've definitely done that. I grew up playing hockey and there were more than a few moments when my brain just kind of turned off and I did something like kind of ridiculous and very much like regretted it afterwards. How about you? Sure, you are your brain. (laughs) I know. I mean, Um, (laughs) I'm trying to describe that feeling when you don't feel entirely in control of yourself consciously. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think I totally know what you mean. And I think that for a lot of people, it's after the fact that they try to look back, they feel the same again, and they think, I don't know why I did that. I really have no idea uh, you know, what possessed me. We even use the word possess as if it's something else has taken control over our brains and bodies. 
And when these kinds of behaviors end in tragedy or even just a negative outcome of some sort, we say that the person snapped, right? And, you know, but if the outcome is positive, we might call that person a hero, you know, the, the, the person who uh, jumps into a frozen lake to save a drowning child. Um, when, you know, if, if self-preservation was really <laughs> the art of the game, they, we wouldn't do that. And I, I haven't had, I mean, at least, I mean, I'm sure <laughs> you can ask people around me, they probably say I have had moments where I've lost my temper or sort of snapped in that way. Um, but the moments that I feel I was not in control of my actions, um, but, you know, sort of had this similar reaction um, were a couple of moments when I had to act very quickly um, when I was a tour director. And uh, a couple times I had um, my passengers either get grievously injured or, or three times actually die. And, you know, you have to act in, you have to do things that you are not really prepared for in those kinds of situations. Cause I mean, I'm certainly not trained. I mean, I have CPR and all that, but I, you know, not trained as a paramedic. So, and yet we sort of find ourselves just taking over and doing things in a kind of Zen state. To me, that's, it's a really interesting, um, sort of thought experiment to try to figure out what's going on in the brain. Uh, but taking it outside of the thought experiment and into the lab, neuroscientist R. Douglas Fields, who's currently the head of the Nervous System Development and Plasticity section at the National Institutes of Health, he addresses these questions in a recent book that came out this week called Why We Snap, Understanding the Rage Circuit in Your Brain. So I talked to Doug this week uh, to figure out what can we learn from neuroscience about these different circuits that are involved in these kinds of actions? And is there a way in which we can predict when someone is about to snap? Or is there a way in which we can enhance our heroism in situations in which that's required? I can't wait to rage quit this episode as as we learn more. <laughs> yeah, you know, I have to say, reading the book, there are definitely moments when he, he he gives a lot of examples, a lot of stories of people snapping. And some of them are really hard for me to stomach because, you know, I feel like when somebody does something that we consider evil and it's, you know, we find out that they had manifestos of hate written all over websites or, you know, in journals and things like that, we kind of say, okay, well, that's a particular kind of person. I understand that. But when you hear stories of someone who doesn't have any of those warning signs and then does something really horrific, like there's, you know, I, I you know, we actually didn't talk about it too much in the interview, um, but, you know, just to warn individuals who are sensitive, um, here's a trigger warning for you. You know, there was one example of uh, literally a grandmother who took her granddaughter and threw her off, you know, a couple of stories in a mall because she was really upset that her um, daughter had been impregnated by a man she found unsuitable. I mean, that to me is just like, you know, why, why, how could you possibly do that? Anyway, it made me sick to my stomach to think about that, in part because it seems so inexplicable. Yeah, I can't wait to actually hear if there's a quantifiable neuroscience basis for this, as opposed to <laughs> what I've mostly heard about this topic, which is mostly on the psychology of it, which are two very different things. Yeah. So that's our interview for today. But first, what are some stories that, uh, that you found reading in the headlines this week? So regular listeners know I'm a fan of really terrible television. And even though we're only about a week into the new year, I found my gem. It's called My Diet is Better Than Yours. It's a new reality show on ABC. And uh, trainers specifically work with a set of people uh, using different diet and exercise regimens. And the winner is who can maximize the percent weight loss in their uh, in their sample. It's really terrible. I don't <laughs> recommend it to anyone. But it had me thinking, especially in the context that we had Tracy Mann on last year, talking about how diets just don't work at all. But it brings up a... Not in the long term, yeah. It brings up an interesting question. Is there something to this idea of, is there a better diet if you sort of take into account the person's individual characteristics? And last week... Uh, in a story in the New York Times, they 
they highlighted how the government released an updated version of the dietary guidelines, like the eat more vegetables, eat more fruit. Eat, and it, the real change was just to eat less sugar, which we've also covered in the last year. But scientists are starting to rebel against the idea of universal guidelines for everyone in favor of a personalized diet approach incorporating genetic testing, information on their microbiome, even information on their chemical exposure and stress load. And there was a recent study by, I'm going to try to get this right, Aaron Elinov and his colleagues from the Weissman Institute of Science that indicated that this personal variance is really holding up. They measured the glucose responses of 800 test subjects um, just across a spectrum, and there are huge variation levels when eating the same food. So you probably heard that idea of high glycemic index food, like white rice or, or sushi or whole grain breads. But there was such a variety of responses that it kind of threw that idea out the window, at least for these uh, these subjects. But even... Hmm. So is there... A- Go ahead. No, no. Ask your question. No, so I was going to say, how does a individual kind of... Can can we figure this out for ourselves or do we need to, you know, have some kind of complicated analysis done? Is there is there going to be a, a new biotech company that's going to pop up uh, a little bit like 23andMe that's going to sort of diagnose your diet Oh, you betcha. Because they actually took the results of this study and combined it with information about their about these people's um, gut bacteria, their medications, or family history, and created an algorithm to predict how they would respond to certain foods. And some of these hmm. um, these tests focused on, like, the genetic test focuses on, like, responses to different uh, nutrition, like folate or choline or vitamin C, fatty acids, all sorts of different stuff. And there is strong indication that there have some predictive power with an algorithm. And even more, there's early indication from another group um, in a study that isn't published yet, so fair warning, uh, that the personalized, they, they quantify this by giving the personalized approach with this sort of test data versus the general good advice like eat more fruits and vegetables had a better impact on overall nutrition and weight loss. Um, and while this algorithm is limited in the current study, in the current time, there is expansion to the private sector with a couple companies getting into the mix about providing testing and then personalized diet information to you. Well, if they can actually find a way that works, I feel like this is a multi-billion dollar idea. Uh, but, you know, I'm just I'm just so skeptical of the fact that we'll be able to kind of hold off and there isn't going to be, you know, a preponderance of small companies that are going to make claims. And oh, maybe I'm just pessimistic about the whole diet industry. I think you're right. To and be, I am. I think you're right to be skeptical. It, it's the same skepticism I have about 23andMe because there's so many factors that come into uh, nutrition and diet even when you just take into account genetic factors. So the idea of they're going to be able to take into account you know, these hundreds of different, you know, impacts to create a personalized diet that's actually going to work. I, I don't know. But here's something to reinforce your thought. Uh, here's an example. There's roughly half the met- uh, the population are what's called fast metabolizers. Other half have a variant of the CYP1A2 gene, um, which has an impact on um, how you process caffeine. So those people with that variant, if they drink two cups or more per day of coffee, they actually have an increased risk of heart attack and hypertension that's very measurable. So there might be something to this in really specific cases, but I'm skeptical too. Yeah, and I, you know, (laughs) yeah, I I also think that the other side of it, though, is that we we it, we have such a hard time measuring the kind of nutrition that is in our food. I mean, it might be like, okay, you know, your perfect diet includes three tomatoes and a cucumber and a piece of fish. But as we know, you know, tomatoes, whether they're, you know, v- what varietal and, and when they've been picked and how they're prepared, all that, you know, affects the nutritional value. So I think this sounds extremely encouraging. It also sounds very, very complicated. And I, I guess the last thing that makes me really skeptical about how quickly we're going to be able to apply this is that we still don't really have a great way of measuring our own microbiomes in our guts. You know, I mean, it, there. I, I think that science is still, in terms of applying it with a here send away test, the way you know Twenty Three and Me, you send a, a swab of your saliva or what have you, and they 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 test that. You know, with, with 
the, the only company that I know that does this is Ubiome for the microbiome. And, you know, there's still a lot of hiccups there. Um, I know I've personally uh, uh, tried their, their services and it's far from seamless. Let's put it that way. I think you're right to be skeptical. I'm just excited about the bevy of ridiculous company names that are going to emerge in this sector. Uh, the couple that were mentioned in the article already, Vitagene, Nutrigenomics. Uh, so I think we have some fun ones coming down the pipe. Uh, anything catch your eyes in, in the news this week? Yeah, so we're still in flu season. Did you get your flu shot this year or last I year? I have both years. I'm pretty uh-huh. re- uh, religious when it comes to getting a flu shot. Uh, when was the last time you had the flu? Oh, it's been a long time. It's been clo- like more than a decade. Do you remember whether you felt like it hit you harder than your wife? Oh, I, I don't. I just remember that feeling of just utter misery. And that's why I get a flu shot. Well, I remember one year where my husband didn't get the flu shot and he got the flu and he was really, 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 really sick. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, it's just the flu. It can't be that bad. Well, it turns out there's some new research that's been published in the American Journal of Physiology, Lung, Cellular and Molecular Physiology (laughs) um, by the lead investigator named Sabra Klein that explains why the flu actually hits men harder than women. So apparently it is a fact that men, uh, when they get the flu, can have worse symptoms and a worse experience than women. And this particular study has shown uh, why that might be. And the answer seems to lie in estrogen. So estrogen apparently has an antiviral property against the influenza A virus, which is common commonly known as the flu. And um, apparently in in this, and, and so in this particular study, the research team collected cells from the noses of men and women, which is of course um, the first cell that often is infected by the flu virus. And, you know, a, the way a virus works is that it, it infects and causes sickness by getting into a cell and then making copies of itself, of course, inside the cell. And then um, it can spread throughout the body and between people. And how well or how much a virus replicates determines the severity of the illness. So if you have less replication of the virus in a person, um, then you will have less, maybe, um, you know, fewer symptoms or, or the symptoms will be less severe. Um, and you're also less likely to spread the disease to someone else. It turns out that in women, but not in men, uh, having estrogen and exposing estrogen to uh, the flu virus in those cells decreased the amount of replication of the virus in those cells what? Uh, compared to... Okay, I've been like sitting quietly for a while because this is just insane. What does like, is this a chemical process they think? Um, Well, I think it might have to do uh, with the receptor beta, uh, which is an estrogen receptor. And, you know, to me, it wasn't really clear reading the study whether they understood the exact mechanism, but it seems there's some relationship between um, this receptor and the way it is found in women, but not men um, in in the, you know, female nasal cells, uh, and that that influences how easily the virus is replicated. And without those receptors, um, or without the presence of as much estrogen uh, in the nasal cells from men, the virus just, you know, goes nuts. I can't wait for the new (laughs) flu mist now with estrogen for uh, to help solve this. This is uh, this is insane. How big of a difference did this have? Uh, that's a good question. Let me look it up. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, you're going beyond my... Because I've always, you know, I'm a a really terrible sick person. I'm I'm just miserable and tough to be around. And and my wife isn't. And I've always just put that on the fact that I think she's tougher than me. I am a real wuss when it comes to getting sick. So yeah, I know part part of me really did not want to report this study because (laughs) that's always been my, you know, my kind of reaction is like, oh, you know, when a guy's sick, they're just, they're just wimps, (laughs) just wusses. Women can just power through it. But apparently maybe that's not the best explanation. Maybe the best explanation is actually that, you know, in women, it just doesn't hit us as hard. Um, I prefer the, I prefer uh, the wimp explanation still. (laughs) 
Um, so there you have it, uh, Kishore. Next time you do get sick <laughs> and it's a virus, and maybe this applies to other viruses, not just the flu virus, uh, you can tell your wife that it actually is worse for you. I'm just going to tell her that I'm just a wimp still. <laughs> so let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Doug Fields. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography as you want at any time from anywhere. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, which includes my own course, and courses taught by award-winning professors and experts from places like National Geographic, the Smithsonian, and the Culinary Institute of America. The Great Courses series are normally priced at two to $300 each, but now you can get unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. You could sign up and watch The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries presented by Neil deGrasse Tyson, plus hundreds of other courses, including mine, 12 Essential Scientific Concepts, for free right now. To sign up for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, R. Douglas Fields. Thank you. It's great to have you on the show, although I should warn our listeners that we are going to be talking about things that sometimes are difficult to hear, uh, sexual assault, perhaps, and uh, violence uh, that occurs when people get very angry and snap. So I just want to put out that trigger warning for any of our listeners that are particularly sensitive. But you've just written this book, Understanding the Rage Circuit in Your Brain, Why We Snap. And I wanted to start off the conversation by asking you, what led you to write this book? I'd be happy to do that. But I, if I may, I would also like to say that, um, you know, this is not all a dark, dark subject and it's not all a dark book because I, what I hope to be able to communicate is that this, we have this capability and these circuits in the brain because we need them and it's a double-edged sword. So um, it's, it's, it's uh, good and it's bad. So why did I write the book? Um, I wrote the book because I was um, attending a scientific meeting when I was uh, with my daughter in Europe and I was robbed on the street and I instantly fought back to get my wallet back. And in the aftermath of that, I was bewildered because I was wondering why did I do that? If I'd ever thought about that, I never would have done that, um, you know, fight with a, a robber. Um, and that led me to realize that we have this capability such that there's something in our environment can cause us, set us off in an aggressive response uh, that does not involve thinking, does not involve the cerebral cortex. That's what astonished me because I realized if there are things in the environment that can cause you to engage in an aggressive interaction in a split second, I wanted to understand how that worked. Um, and then I realized that this is the same kind of mechanism that uh, is involved in, in uh, everyday uh, losing it, you know, um, or also involved in heroism, acts of heroism, where the hero will always say afterwards, I don't know, I didn't think, I just, I just reacted. So that's how I got into it. So it sounds a little bit like a reflex in the sense that we don't feel consciously in control of it, but it's much more complex than the reflexes that we, you know, generally think about, um, you know, is somebody, it's some, like the patella reflex, right? That makes your, your leg jump. But, uh, you know, these are, these are a, a complex series of behaviors that people engage in that even in the moment must require some conscious thought. So I guess my question to you is, you know, how do we kind of define this, this behavior? Uh, is it a reflex? Is it, is there some other word for it? Um, how Absolutely. do you characterize it? Yeah, I, I hear your question. It is extremely complex. Um, and a reflex doesn't really capture the phenomenon. When you just think about the episode I just described, I'm on a street and then suddenly I um, responded to being robbed 
uh, unleashing this very complex behavior to engage in a physical tussle with the, with the bad guy. But at the same time, I wondered how that happened because I wasn't aware of the guy. Um, yet I came to realize that our brain is constantly taking in uh, situational information about our environment and constantly on the lookout for dangers. Uh, and also monitoring our internal state, looking for dangers. This does not reach the conscious mind. Um, first of all, it's too much information. Our capacity of the conscious mind is extremely small, so we couldn't hold all this information. And secondly, that's way too slow. All of this sensory input that I'm talking about, all of our senses feed into the brain's threat detection system and reaches that system before we're even consciously aware of it. Um, so. It's, 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 you're right, it's not a simple reflex. It's a very complex uh, mechanism, and it works amazingly well in complex situations. So it's extremely difficult to study, of course, in the lab, because we can't really make people snap. It's not really ethical, uh, you know, in, in these kinds of very dangerous situations. Um, so how would you study this in humans in the lab? Let's start there, and then maybe we can um, turn to some of the animal work. Well, uh, that's the approach that, that I'm taking in this book, in, in, uh, in, in this quest to understand this behavior. Um, I'm not taking a, a, a approach from psychology. There's a rich literature on aggression and psychology. I took a neuroscience approach. I went into the brain to look at the new research showing what are the circuits that will unleash sudden aggression because all human behaviors, all behavior in animals is controlled by the brain. So I went in to look at the literature and the research on what are the circuits that are controlling sudden aggression. And there's a lot of research on that. It's, uh, there's research um, on, uh, on animals, um, but there's also uh, imaging, brain imaging research on people. Once these uh, circuits are defined in animals, they can then be studied in people uh, using brain imaging. So that's, that's, that was the approach of the book. So sometimes I hear people say, oh, that was my reptilian brain or my lizard brain acting. And that always makes me bristle. And so, of course, the beginning of your book where you debunk this notion that we have a reptilian brain that acts on its own, um, you know, had me nodding in agreement. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. Where did this idea that we have a lizard brain come from? And why is it misguided? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a, such an archaic idea. It's 50, 50 years out of date. And, and that's what I want to bring to the public is all the new exciting uh, new detailed information about the brain's threat uh, response detection and response system that's coming about based on new methods that didn't exist before. Um, that idea in the past was just um, an oversimplification. It was really uh, based on minimal data. It was an extrapolation. The scientists really didn't, you know, it was a way to communicate some concepts to the public. Um, scientists don't view the brain as having a reptilian component. I mean, um, every animal's brain is, is different and unique and, and developed for that animal. We call, you know, we call an octopus has eight arms, but, you know, it's not an arm, it's a tentacle, it's nothing like a human arm. So that was just, that had some, I think, appealing character for the public, the idea of, you know, dinosaurs or reptiles suddenly going wild and, and fighting, that just stuck. But your first question indicates how that's impossible. In fact, the threat detection system in the human brain and in the brains of other animals spans across the brain. It goes from the prefrontal cortex all the way to the hypothalamus. And it's because if you tried to build a threat detection system for a robot and tried to incorporate the same kinds of capabilities that we have in our brain, that would be an extremely complex system. So yes, uh, the lizard brain is, I, I hope, uh, dead and gone. It, the, the reality is just a lot more interesting. And, you know, a lot of people sort of blame this lizard brain, uh, you know, to sort of dis you know, describe or, or explain why we sometimes behave primitively. But the truth is, is that even if we shared some of the, uh, 
you know, during our evolution, we, we shared some of the same structural uh, changes and differences as uh, some other animal species. That doesn't mean that we haven't continued to evolve. And even if we have a comparable structure, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that it works in exactly the same way in our brains as it does, say, in the brain of a rodent. That's absolutely right. But beyond that, um, if you look at the circuitry in the brain, it comes down to triggers and what's going to trigger this behavior. And, and it can't be something as simplistic as just a lizard brain going off. So it, there are one of, one of the new findings in the field is that we have different circuits in the brain for different kinds of threats to respond to different threats. And they're different circuits. They're not, you know, one, they're not one human, uh, they're not the amygdala, you know, they're not one thing. They're different independent circuits. So that leads to, you know, what triggers these different, uh, what situations will trigger an aggressive response. And they're very specific. I have to be specific because they're dangerous. You know, you, you're not going to engage in a physical uh, battle. Uh, it's risky uh, for, for no reason. So um, this threat detection mechanism is highly regulated and is only tripped by very specific provocations um, that activate these circuits that we have evolved in our brain. Uh, but sometimes, sometimes they misfire, they're inappropriately activated. And that's what makes these incidences of people snapping and doing things that seem so out of character and can potentially be so tragic just so mystifying, right? So you give a couple of examples of, you know, really, really tragic uh, situations in which a person just behaves, reacts out of proportion to the perceived insult to them. So for one example is a, is a, is a man named Ray Young who snapped at a post office not far from where you live and who, you know, essentially took out a butterfly knife and, and stabbed a person that he perceived as cutting in front of him in line. So what is it about these, in, in your, in your um, reading of the literature, these situations that causes someone to really behave so out of character? Well, that's an example where, um, um, well, first of all, let's back up. We don't call it snapping unless um, the action is inappropriate, misguided. But if you look in the brain, the same circuit will be activated in response to, say, an act of heroism where the person instantly goes to rescue somebody uh, or some amazing uh, um, athletic maneuver on the field to avoid some danger. We call that quick thinking. It's the same circuitry. It's the brain's threat detection circuitry. But what happens in, but, but when that circuitry is activated inappropriately, we call it snapping. Um, and you're right. You hit on the things that interested me the most. First of all, it's not conscious. Person, people don't consciously deliberate and decide. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to engage in road rage now. First, you know, it's not conscious. It's unconscious, and that's because this is this threat res response. It's a reaction to threat. And, and why does that? Why is it unconscious? It has to be unconscious because it has to be fast. It has to be immediate. Um, this this is the same circuitry that protects us from uh, a rattlesnake a snake bite kind of thing. Um, so why does it happen inappropriately? Um, two reasons. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's uh, never easy to know what the right response is in any sudden situation, to freeze or flee or fight. Or fight. Um, and secondly, uh, in the cases in the newspaper and the one that you read, there's usually a another backstory that doesn't get reported. And it's usually the case that there's an enduring long-term uh, chronic stress taking place. It's not that these people are, are mentally ill. And, you know, that's what I, I read the paper every day, domestic disputes, whatever. And we tend, you know, they talk about how this person was just a normal everyday person and now suddenly snapped. And then we kind of just dismiss the thing. Or we say, well, that's crazy. He was crazy. Well, he wasn't crazy. His threat detection mechanism, uh, the triggers on that mechanism, were set on edge by chronic stress. That's almost always the reason. 
And, you know, it's that's so, sort of really interesting when you also put it into context of some of the original animal work that you cite where, you know, even though we're talking about circuits and certainly no one region, brain region acts alone, um, there is one brain region that if you stick an electrode in it in a cat and stimulate it, it will unleash, uh, you know, a series of these very complex behavioral rage responses. Right. And you're talking about the hypothalamic attack region. Yeah, you put an electrode in this region of a cat and you stimulate those neurons and a docile cat suddenly launches into an aggressive response. Um, and, you know, these days scientists use more sophisticated mechanisms to stimulate the neurons more specifically with optogenetics and whatnot. But the point is, that's a deep region of the brain well beyond consciousness. It's the parts of the brain that controls other urges and impulses, sexual uh, behavior, uh, feeding. Um, and the point is that we have this circuitry in our brain, hardwired for violence because we need it. Um, through the course of evolution for our survival in the wild, we needed to have the capability for aggression to protect ourselves if we're attacked to protect our, our family. Um, and as a species, we're carnivores, we kill animals. So you don't need to be taught aggression or, e or even how to fight. Um, and that was kind of one of the other big shocks to me when I had my incidents. I don't have any background in martial arts. I don't have any training. I was never in the military. I don't, there's nothing. Um, and somehow I, engaged this criminal in, in a street fight uh, and found that, you know, I suddenly did have all these aggressive capabilities um, that I didn't even know, and I hadn't trained to, to learn them. They're there. Um, and I think, you know, many listeners will, in their own lives, uh, or, or at least know of such stories where suddenly, in a very desperate situation, they defend themselves um, very aggressively. So we have this wiring, and it's deep in the brain, and it is unleashed, and, but only in specific um, responsive specific triggers, nine specific triggers. And you know, I want to get to the triggers, but I, I want to stay on the hippocamp in the sorry, the hypothalamus for a little bit. Um, <laughs> that was a Freudian slip. The hippocampus is my favorite brain region. Um, but well, the hypothalamus, favorite, everyone's favorite brain region, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's where, you know, our long-term memories reside, or at least are get made. Um, but uh, the hypothalamus really is does more than just, you know, send signals uh, electrically to the brain that also is involved in regulating the hormones um, that, you know, your brain is awash in. So all of a sudden, we can start to see how chronic stress, which also, you know, has an effect on your the hormones in your brain and so forth and how they function, um, can create this, you know, kind of um, messy situation. So do, what do we, how do we, when we think about um, the hypothalamus as being this trigger point, uh, can we pinpoint uh, certain hormones or neurotransmitters that uh, are, are related to this activity, or is that just oversimplifying it? Well, um, you're right. Um, when you think about an aggressive behavior, aggressive response, fighting, um, that's really complex sensory motor cognitive function. Um, and it activates a number of systems in the body to prepare you to fight your cardiovascular, your muscular system. This involves activation of the fight or flight response. Um, with, and so this is preparing you to fight and, and that requires the release of, uh, hormones and neurotransmitters to increase your arousal state of arousal, increase your capacity to um, focus your thoughts and to engage in a, a physical struggle. Uh, the hypothalamus being part of the brain that can regulates all of these automatic functions of the body makes sense that that's going to be the system that's going to be able to, to uh, set all of these systems in place. So hormones, um, yeah, hormones um, are important. And I think it gets back to your other question of, we talked about chronic stress, but uh, there are specific triggers for aggression, 
but the threshold for activating those triggers changes. Um, and it depends upon um, the environment, the situation, uh, your internal state. A number of factors will affect the threshold at which these triggers are pulled. And hormone levels and stress hormones, sex hormones, are certainly uh, an important part of that. Um, you know, we talk about roid rage and bodybuilders who take all this testosterone. Um, and, but the biological reason for that is that, uh, is that it makes sense to change the triggers on your aggressive response um, according to your situation. Um, animals change their levels of aggression seasonally. Male animals become very aggressive. Um, around here, we have a problem with deer <laughs> a certain time of year when they're out and, uh, competing for mates. That's all hormonal, and it makes sense that um, now that you're engaging in a situation where you risk, you're engaged in aggression, um, you need to have a different threshold on the trigger. So that, that's why these systems interact. And, you know, you also have, you know, in, in new mothers, for example, there is also this fear that there, some of the hormonal changes and the stress and the sleep deprivation um, can lead to violence towards the very, uh, you know, object of their greatest affection, the baby. So, you know, you get shaken baby syndrome and, you know, other, you know, horrific acts that can happen. Um, so is this, is there something that we, is there some kind of common ground that we can say that uh, chronic stress or, or, you know, the other changes that come with it um, when a person is stressed, say lack of sleep, um, can we, can we point to a kind of, you know, a, a particular thing that we can do to avoid it is, is I guess where I'm trying to get. Yeah, I hear you. Um, but uh, I'd like listeners to think of it a little bit differently. The question is, why chronic stress makes us jumpy, why lack of sleep makes us jumpy. Uh, and the reason is, is that it makes sense to change the threshold on the triggers. So, for example, if you are in a hostile environment, um, an inner city or a war situation, it makes really good sense that the, the brain's threat detection system is going to be put on high alert. That's, that's, that's important, and that's what happens. Um, but in another environment, um, in, or inner, you know, think of a kid in an inner city area, you kind of have to be aggressive or you become prey. So, um, th this is an important part of the mechanism, changing the thresholds on the trigger. And so that's why, uh, I know what you mean when you say we need to control this, but I think what we really need to do is understand it. We need to understand what stress is. Stress is your unconscious mind, your, your threat detection mechanism, taking in all this information about your internal state and the external state and coming up to the conclusion that you are in danger. And it can't lay this out in a large logical argument. It can't rationalize this. It's not in your cortex. So the way it communicates to the cortex is with an emotion and multicolored emotions. So stress produces this emotion of anxiety and stress. And that just means we're under chronic dangerous situation. Well, if that's the case, then you need to lower, you, you will lower the threshold on, on snapping. Um, and so you may, just being aware of that can be very helpful because a lot of things can cause stress and a lot of them we can't control. Um, you know, a lot of the situations are out of our control and cause stress. But just being aware of the fact that you are now on a hair trigger can help you prevent misfiring. Um, if you're under, some stresses you can avoid, like being late for work, uh, you know, you can avoid that. Uh, but that stress will make you more likely to have road rage. So I think just this awareness that, okay, I'm under stress, I need to be really, really careful um, to these, sensitive to these nine provocations for snapping. Secondly, you got to realize that, recognize that in other people. A stranger suddenly as you described, reacts out of proportion to the incident, he's under stress or she's under stress or a coworker. Um, we need to recognize that, that is, that's what's going on. It's a special danger and that really uh, you got to deal with the, the stress and be a little bit more careful in, in interacting. So on the one hand, we have to have this chronic stress 
and then a trigger. Um, but we also have to have the inability to inhibit uh, these inappropriate actions, which of course, you know, we've evolved a frontal cortex in part in order to allow us to inhibit these impulsive uh, behaviors. So what goes awry in these situations that turns off the inhibition that is generally there? Right. Uh, but again, um, we don't always want to inhibit this. I mean, this is not pathology. This is biology. We need it. The circuit is life-saving. We have it because it's there. Um, what we want to inhibit, inhibit is, and I understand your question, is what, when, when the uh, response is inappropriate, which we call snapping. The way to inhib inhibit this is to recognize the triggers. But um, this inhibition of, of the um, brain's threat detection um, circuitry takes place from the prefrontal cortex. So we do have a way to inhibit this, this response. Um, but again, um, you know, it, it's just too simplistic to say we want to, that we need to inhibit it because it's, it's, it's there to save your life. So let's talk about the triggers. You've got a nice um, mnemonic for, to help us remember them. So why don't you tell our listeners about that? Well, this came from uh, looking at the circuitry in the brain, the neuroscience approach, as we began our discussion, you know, what in the brain what circuitry can produce sudden aggression? The circuitry is pretty well defined, actually, and, but in the, in the last few years, it's really been an explosion of new information. And it turns out that there are different circuits for different kinds of sudden aggression. Now, in the scientific literature, they don't use the, the mnemonic that I came up with, life morts. Um, they use a whole host of different uh, words and jargon. But in order to communicate science to uh, public, a lot of that is just simply getting rid of the jargon. So scientists will talk about one circuit as the maternal aggression circuit, and another one will be a conspecific aggression or a defensive aggression. These are all different circuits of, of, of rage and, and, and aggression that are tripped by very different circumstances. Maternal aggression is uh, that mama bear that we're all familiar with. If uh, a mother's um, uh, offspring are threatened, she will instantly defend with, with uh, aggressively with violence to protect her offspring. And that, that's, there's a circuit for that. Um, you can manipulate that circuit, knock it out, and she'll no longer have that behavior, but she still has a response to an intruder, say. So there are these, that's what was so fascinating is we have these different circuits for sudden aggression. Um, but in order to to uh, communicate this science, but more importantly, in order to put practical use of this science, it was necessary to be able to, for the readers to identify what the trigger of aggression was. So that's the key to, to uh, managing snapping. If you can suddenly realize why there's this sudden rise in anger um, with a given provocation on the highway, in terms of which was which of these triggers has been hit, you will instantly be able to see that this is a misfiring of a circuit due to a situation in the modern world that didn't exist when these circuits were laid down, um, or it's just completely inappropriate for um, physical aggression to be helpful in this situation. So that's how it happens and it's very helpful to me. Rather than the approach of ang anger management, you know, telling somebody, calm down, don't be angry. I'm afraid that doesn't work very well many times. What people wanna know is why they're angry suddenly. Um, so if you can identify the trigger, nine triggers, then you can do that. Uh, so I came up, I had, it was just a little word problem. How do I take all these triggers that are in the literature, scientific literature and make them something you could remember. I came up with life morts because there are nine triggers, as you, as you know from your memory research, we, we can't remember nine things. Uh, so we chunk it into two things, life and morts. And if you can remember life morts and what those letters stand for, you can quickly identify the trigger. Just for example, we talked about maternal aggression. Um, that's F in life morts uh, uh, for family, for example. So that's the idea. 
So let's just give our listeners a quick overview of what each letter stands for so that they know what we're talking about. Right, okay. Um, the first one is life for limb, and that's familiar. Everyone's familiar. If you are uh, attacked, you will respond with violence and self-defense. Um, our legal system recognizes that we have that right. It's completely automatic. You're on the basketball court and the ball comes flying at you. You, you exhibit instantly this defensive, aggressive response. You duck, you stick your hands out, and you block it. None of that's conscious. That's the life for limb. Um, I is a little bit more uh, difficult. Um, it is, stands for insult. The, uh, and the reason <laughs> insult is the cause of a lot of aggression in human society and a lot of snapping. We have barroom brawls and we have, um, you know, in the old days, uh, we would have duels to the death all over insult. Well, why is that? That's because if you look in the animal literature, um, social animals maintain their dominance within their society by aggression. Think uh, rams butting heads or something. So, so do primates, and we have this circuitry, and humans are completely dependent upon our social structure. That translates directly into resources and privileges. So um, this is why... Um, that when you feel an insult, that uh, you are suddenly angry. Why, why anger and not something else? Uh, it's because uh, violence is in the brain to, as a legacy of maintaining dominance within society, and humans have language, so that translates into, into um, insult. F, we've talked about, that's maternal aggression. Um, any parent will sacrifice instantly, engage aggressively to depend, defend their young. E is environment. Um, any animal will defend their territory. Their anim the, not any animal, but there are many animals who are territorial. Humans are fiercely territorial. We have private property. Um, you know, no trespassers will be shot. Um, somebody comes in your house at night, uh, you will snap aggressively if you have to, to protect your territory because our life depends upon having a territory. Um, so, so that's environment. The M is mating. Um, violence and aggression is used to obtain mates and to protect them um, in a large part of the mammalian uh, world, and certainly in primates. That's a very common mechanism of, of aggression, and we see this played out in human society in, in many different ways. O is organization. And this is kind of interesting. Why suddenly, this is what set off the, the person in the post office. Why did he suddenly get angry when somebody cut in line? Well, human beings being strictly social organize their social structure by violence, the same way that other social animals do. It's just that it's very codified and regulated as to how we do that. Um, but we use violence to maintain social order. Um, we put people in jail, we fine them, we take away their licenses to practice their profession. All of those are forms of violence because that's how we maintain structure in society. So the org that's what's quite interesting, though, about human beings, because this is, a, this is the strength, the great strength of human beings, that we can get together and work together and have this organization. And it's kind of unusual. I mean, why would we suddenly be enraged when somebody runs a stop sign? Um, you know, other animals necessarily wouldn't care what another animal does. You know, wouldn't, a cat's not going to get angry at the other cat that doesn't use the cat box. You know? So this is really kind of important core part of human nature. R is resources. That's one of the things that, you know, that um, tripped my response, and that is protecting um, our property. Uh, and you see this in a, you know, your, your friendly pet, dog uh, suddenly will snap if another dog comes over to his food dish. That's biology. T is tribe. Again, humans are fiercely social. Um, and when we evolved the brain that we have today uh, in the wild, an encounter with a, a, a strange stranger was a threat. Um, societies were small. Um, and so we have the ability we have circuitry in the brain that within a fraction of a section, second will classify a stranger as to either us or them. 
and we will use violence to defend our tribe. The last one is stopped, and that's restraint aggression. Um, if you are, if you are um, impeded or restrained, you will, res you, I mean any animal, will resort to aggressive action uh, to escape. I mean, a, an animal will, will gnaw its paw off to get out of a trap, but so will a human being. You know, it's the case of that backpacker who cut his own arm off when he was trapped in that, that book. Uh, sorry, I don't remember his name, but uh, that's an example of where aggression makes, is, is the mechanism to escape from restraint. So that's how they work. And the key is to recognize these circuits of rage we have in the brain for good reason, because we need them, but recognize how um, they appear in our modern society, which is just so different from the time from 100,000 years ago, that these, uh, these same provocations, the, the provocations in the modern world that didn't exist before have to be, you have to recognize if they're tapping into the circuitry and causing this anger and aggression. So one of the last things I wanted to ask you about is culpability. If we agree, and I'm not sure yet that we do, that people who snap or you know go through these experiences really aren't conscious of what they're doing, how do we then assign responsibility for them? If they're just sort of triggered by these events and you know there's this sense that they're not even really consciously aware of what they are doing, um, can we still make them responsible for those actions? Well, I think understanding the mechanism behind a behavior um, doesn't excuse the behavior. I mean, understanding that people rob banks because they want to have money doesn't excuse the behavior. And I understand that snapping is something that happens instantaneously. Uh, but unless there is an organic you know, a disease, which certainly exists, that that is impairing the normal function of this threat uh, response circuitry, a person is responsible for their actions. Um, and so I think, I think culpability um, only comes into play if you're talking about, um, you know, mental, mental or neurological illness that would prevent uh, the person from being able to to have the normal uh, functioning of this of this circuitry. The other is, of course, drugs of abuse and alcohol, those sorts of things definitely uh, affect this circuitry. And that explains why people snap when they're drunk and commit sexual assaults. And so, but the fact that we understand that at a biological level doesn't excuse it, you know, doesn't excuse it. So you don't think we're going to get to a point where people can use the, I just snapped, you know, my brain made me do it defense to excuse these kinds of behaviors? No, um, I would say uh, the only exception is, you know, we, we recognize that, that children don't have, their brain is not developed, and particularly the prefrontal cortex connections to the threat detection circuits are not developed. So they don't have the mechanism. It's not that they just don't have the adult experience and they don't have the brain mechanism for judgment and control of impulses. So uh, we do make an exception in society. We don't hold juveniles criminally responsible um, you know, in the way that we would hold an adult criminally responsible. Well, I want to take a moment to remind our listeners that Doug's book, Why We Snap, Understanding the Rage Circuit in Your Brain, is now available at booksellers everywhere. R. Douglas Fields, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you. So, is there a neuroscience explanation for rage? Well, it's I'm a not sure. Bit like asking, I'm not. I'm not sure. After <laughs> is that. there? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm. I'm with you, and you know, I. There are obviously a lot of circuits that are involved in these different complex behaviors. And the thing that um, I felt I was sort of left wanting at the end of reading the book as well uh, is really a kind of nailed down explanation of exactly how it works. But the truth is, is that these behaviors are complicated. And he makes the point that they are triggered by at least nine different categories of triggers. And so each of these 
categories is going to come into a different circuit or at least, you know, have a have a somewhat different pathway. Um, and of course, the behaviors that result are also very different. So I think that, you know, what we can conclude ultimately is that, you know, we can see that there are patterns in terms of when these behaviors are more or less likely. Um, but in terms of giving you a tight neural underpinning, uh, that's not there yet. And, and I don't know that it ever will be, you know, these are, these are complicated, uh, behaviors. But the one thing that I really liked about his explanation of the neuroscience is his rejection of this notion that we have a reptilian brain, um, because I hear that all the time. And he makes it even more clear in his book when he talks about, you know, originally this whole concept of a reptilian brain um, referred to the brain stem, which is sort of like, you know, one of what we consider one of the most primitive parts of our brain. Um, and there's, there's, you know, sort of reasons for that, but it's been taken to mean what we now think of as the limbic system, which is, which is, you know, a, a network in your brain that is involved in a lot of things. But one of the things it's, it's primarily involved in is emotional processing. Um, and, you know, you often hear people say, oh, you know, it's my primitive brain taking over. And that's just a misunderstanding of what we know um, about how the brain works. I totally understand there needs to be a new phrase for that. But I, I really relate to the feeling that phrase is trying to evoke is that oftentimes the feeling of one of these experiences is one of of sort of unconscious thought if you will like you don't feel like it um you're necessarily in control or that you're having conscious thoughts and the time scale at which it happens seems to be very very short at least from an outward perspective it's not like it builds up it builds up it builds up and then you snap in terms of of your feeling and perception of it. Now, he was very convincing that that is not the case, that there is a lot more going on there uh, in a lot of different regions. Um, I would love to see the converse of um, maybe trying to explain why we sort of have a bit of that feeling, like do any of these circuits not basically just not run in the prefrontal cortex in, or in an area that we would associate with, the, uh, with that sort of, I'm using this inarticulate term of conscious thought, but... Like, I'm really curious what gives rise to the, that sort of perception. Well, and I think that here we come at sort of a difference in, in, in the way in which we think about conscious thought. So, you know, for a lot of people, consciousness is an on-off switch. You either are conscious or you're not. Um, but we know that consciousness is actually a continuum, right? So we can change the levels of consciousness that we experience just by going to sleep, for example. Um, it's not like all of a sudden your consciousness turns off. You kind of go through stages in which you're more or less conscious of different aspects, different things, different thoughts in your head, different um, senses that are sensory stimulation that's coming from your body. Um, and, you know, we can alter levels of consciousness using drugs. That's how anesthesia works. And we can heighten consciousness using, you know, psychoactive drugs and so forth. So I think that, um, you know, this notion that you are, are either conscious of your actions or not um, is just our, it's, it's kind of an overly simplified view of how we look at our own behavior. Um, and the reason that I brought up in the interview the aspect of memory is that, you know, that's that's where a lot of my training and work has been done. And, and I'm really interested in to what extent is it the the state of your brain and the moment which you are acting, um, you know, is so different from the state of your brain afterwards because of, you know, the stress level and adrenaline and so forth that you just don't remember <laughs> the kind of thought process that you went through in the same way that you don't remember what it's like to be a two-year-old because the brain of a two-year-old is very different from the brain of a 22-year-old. Um, so that's one side of it that I'm kind of not sure that, you know, to me would be a really interesting question is, you know, to what extent are we actually consciously aware of what we're doing in the moment of snapping um, versus to what extent are we simply unable to remember, uh, you know, what that experience was like and how conscious we were? I, I have to say, just as a last thought, it is really provoking and uh, to think about the idea that heroism and and this sort of uh, rage are, are two sides of a very similar coin from a neuroscience perspective. I thought that was very interesting idea to sort of play with and think about. Um, that they, we have perceptions of this moment of snapping 
as being very negative, but it doesn't necessarily show up that way in reality. Yeah. So that also showed me that, you know, we might have a very similar pattern of brain activity, a very similar mental inner experience, but how we label it depends on the context and the outcome of the action. So if we label it as snapping, it's because the, you know, we did something that we consider morally or ethically reprehensible. But if we call it an act of heroism, you know, you could still imagine that you have the very same uh, cognitive processes involved, the very same circuits involved, the same activation, and yet the context is different. Now the person, you know, and, and, and the best examples of these would be in which you have to actually cause someone else harm in order to save an innocent, right? So, you know, you could argue, let's say you pulled a knife and stabbed somebody, uh, you know, multiple times. If you did that because they cut you in line at the post office, we consider that, that you snapped. If they did that because that person was threatening harm, you know, to a two-year-old, we consider that an act of heroism. All right. Well, I think by now we've we've talked out the uh, moments of, of that lead to tragedy, both in mass shootings and in these elements of rage. So next week, we promise our listeners uh, we will have a completely different topic to talk about. It. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and our anonymous donors. Thank you so much. And once again, this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. And with it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography as you want at any time from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. And if you happen to be in the Los Angeles area, I am the co-founder of a company called Pasadena Opera. And this weekend, we will be presenting um, Carlisle Floyd's opera, Susanna. It's totally awesome at a Noise Within Theater in Pasadena. And beforehand, at 7 o'clock, uh, b- before both shows, Friday and Saturday night, I'll be giving a pre-show short lecture about Carlisle Floyd and the tools that he uses to get the music into our minds. So come see us there. I think Saturday night's show is almost sold out, but Friday night we still have some tickets left. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by rage quitter Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.